Kathy Motlasana on SAFM. Let me welcome onto the show Dr. Mark Vegariff, who is the Development Studies Program Coordinator at the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Pretoria to uh, discuss with us and unpack the latest essential food pricing report. Good morning and thank you so much for your time. Morning, Kathy, and the listeners, and thanks for having me. And, and I hope I'm uh, I'm doing a good attempt on on your surname. Am I getting it right? <laughs> it's fine, and you can call me Mark. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I'll call you Kathy Moslaslana, but um, you can call me Mark. <laughs> Oh, that was a good one. That was a very good one. So it's it's v- vigorous, hey? No. Well, it's of Dutch origin, so vigorous. Oh, vigorous. Kathy, it's fine. Mark is good. <laughs> okay, Kelly, that's the way, that's that's Doctor Mark's way of saying I'm not going to get it trying. right I anytime soon. You try, you know, when too many other people don't try. <laughs> All right, I I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for letting me slide this one time. So let's talk about this report from the Competition Commission and. Um, you know, of course, there's been mixed reaction to it, but I just wanted uh, to check from you your own analysis of what this report is telling us about, uh, the, you know, the state of our agricultural industry. Well, first of all, I think we really welcome the report and would tend to agree with all the key you know, messages in the report. It's quite a short report, so it, it doesn't go into a lot of detail. Um, but I think that makes it more accessible, and so we, you know, work on the report and the discussion around it. And I think just to highlight the, you know, the importance of this food price issue, especially in this time of a crisis that we are going through. Uh, and obviously, we, we are definitely seeing increases in the level of food insecurity in this time. And this is building on even pre-COVID, we had a serious problem. I would argue a crisis of poverty, inequality, food insecurity. But it's got worse with COVID. And of course, two main things are happening. Many people have lost income, mm-hmm. and especially the poorest and the lowest paid and more insecure workers, which are majority women, have lost income. And at the same time, food prices have increased. That's driving food insecurity. And, and maybe I can just elaborate on those food price increases, which the, um, the report does go into. But one of the things that's interesting for me, which they didn't highlight very specifically, is the difference between the food price uh, increase and the core inflation, our, our CPI. So when we look at the data from April last year, so from the beginning of COVID up to, I mean, I've looked at it up to June um, this year, over that period, the food price increased more than the core inflation every month. And, and that's at an average rate of 64.2%. So our food prices increased 64.2% more than core inflation. And that really matters because so often we peg things like wage negotiations to core inflation. Uh, the government increases its social support grants and so on. Well, they're in line with the core inflation, often, in fact, even below core inflation. So if the prices are going up more than that core inflation, that is really hitting us in the pocket. You know, if, if we have inflation, but also wages and incomes go up, then it's not going to hurt us so much. But when the cost of food goes up so much more than core inflation, then it really hurts us. And it really hurts the poorest most because the poorest spend a far higher proportion of their income on food, understandably, because it's the first basic thing. So if you're spending 
70 to 80 percent of your income on food and that food prices going up so much then you know that's that's really driving a crisis of food insecurity you know and i hope I and mean, the statistics maybe get confusing so just try and make it simple i mean when i say that 64.2 percent it means that across everything you're buying your normal basket of purchases if the price goes up you know the increased cost to you as a mm. person is goes up 100 rand the increased cost of food is going up 164 rand that's a real yeah, difference. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it again, it makes so much sense because one of the complaints that has been coming out under, you know, particularly the, the, the lockdowns was that people were complaining about seeing increases in prices of food. But this was often disputed as being anything, uh, as not being anything extraordinary. And yet what consumers were saying is that Food is costing them a lot more than it did even before we got into the the the, the pandemic. Yeah, and 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 it, you know you have these sort of general statistics, but I like the statistics that this Peter Maritzburg Economic Justice and Dignity put out because mm-hmm. they are looking at what it actually costs a a woman in a poorer neighbourhood of South Africa uh, to purchase a basket of food, and if you look at their latest report mm-hmm. up to August, they show that. The cost of the basics, not not the fancy stuff, the core that people will buy. So that's got to be your maize, your cooking oil, maybe a bit of sugar, the cabbage, and whatever it is. That cost over the last over the last twelve months has gone up eleven percent. Core inflation in that time was averaging around three point three percent. So it's three and a half times the core inflation rate is what these women in poor neighbourhoods are actually paying for the basket of core foods they need. So they're being hit. The hardest, and as I mentioned, also it's the poorest that have also lost more jobs, and women have lost more jobs. And mm. um, the, the higher income levels, above the, you know the top twenty percent or so of our population, th- their incomes have hardly been affected, and there've been very few job losses. Their losses are really at the lower end, and that's where we've got to, you know what we've got to care about. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Marg Vigoroff, uh, who is the Development Studies Program Coordinator at the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Pretoria. The Talking Point with Kathy Motlasana, weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, we continue unpacking the Competition Commission's latest report looking at essential food pricing and how that has been affected by COVID-19, but also just by the economic situation that the country finds itself in. So one of the concerns, Dr. Mark, that has been raised in this report include, you know, the farm to retail spread in prices. When we look at something like that, does it mean that there is is a a disproportionate increase in the amount of goods from what they cost at the farm versus what they cost if I'm buying it off the shelf? In South Africa, within the food system, we have a, a, a very large gap in places between what the farmer gets and what we're paying as a consumer, like in, in the supermarket. And the, the report touches on that. It, it looks at pricing for you know, onions, tomatoes, and some other produce. And it didn't, unfortunately, give us the comparison on the onions and tomatoes um, uh, with the retail price and the and wholesale price. It gave us the wholesale prices. It did give us the comparison on meat, and there was a big gap there. One of the things that interested me was in the meat side is that the, the gap 
between the, the, the wholesale price of the meat and the retail price increased more with our lower cost meat, you know, the, the chuck and so on. So again, it always seems that the poorest are getting hit the hardest. You know, we've been following some of the fresh produce. And just to take an example, onion, you know, a simple example, which we need so often in basic cooking and so on. You know, for 12 months, I've looked at the 12 months averages, like in the Johannesburg fresh produce market, which mm. is the biggest in the country. So for 12 months up to, you know, from the beginning of COVID up to March 2021, the average price per kilo in the Johannesburg fresh produce market was 4 and 30 So that is what the farmer gets. But the farmer also has to pay a 12.5% commission and they have to pay transport. So the farmer's getting 4 and 30 per kilo less commissions, less transport. The average retail price in the same period for onions was 16 rand 80 a kilo. Sure. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's, 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 mo- that's, yeah, that's more than triple the price. It's eye-watering, yeah. It's 12 rand 50 mm. different or 294% different. So, and you've got to ask yourself, this onion is not being processed. Maybe it's repackaged, but it's not ground out. It's not, you know, made into something else. It's an onion. Mm. And you can get the onion wholesale at 430 kilo. But on average, we've been paying retail 16 rand 80. What is happening to that 12 rand 50? Who is that going to? And I would argue it's largely going into the pockets of food corporations and some of our supermarkets. And it's quite amazing to see that through this crisis, these corporations have continued to increase their profits. Um, you know, James Hodge, the chief economist, at, you know, talking on SAFM yesterday morning, actually talked about the way that these corporations can immunize themselves from these pressures. They're in such a powerful position of domination that they immunize themselves by pushing um, pressure onto the farmers in terms of what they pay the farmers, mm-hmm. and then pushing on the costs onto the consumers. And I certainly think we see that in something like the onion. Now, it's just important to note this gap has existed before COVID. So this is not... Uh, something that's happened under COVID has existed already, but it's a, it's a serious problem in the system. And and it's remarkable that in this time of crisis, I mean, it's a state of disaster. It's a legal state of disaster. But these companies have been able to continue maintaining their margins and pushing up their profits. I can give you some examples of those profit increases if you want. So, sure, please you know, go like, for it. Please, please. Okay. Mm. Well, let's, let's just take, I mean, maize, grains, of course, are important in our staple diet. Tiger Brands is our biggest food company in South Africa. Uh, if we compare, this is based on their own reporting, if we compare the six months to the end of March this year with the six months the year before, so that's the six months before COVID and six, the middle, six months, which is the latest where we have figures from them, they, um, they reduced their volume of sales of grains by about 4%. Uh, I would assume that's because people have less money to buy. Mm. But they managed to increase their revenue by 10%. They Which doesn't make sense, then, yeah. They increased the prices by 14%. Mm-hmm. So in a situation where volumes are down, and you would think in terms of basic economic logic, they might reduce prices to try and recapture market share or something. They actually increased prices 14% on grain, and they managed, therefore, to get a 10% increase in profit in this disaster situation and, of course, massively increased their returns to shareholders. They did the same thing in their milling and baking. And, of course, they're a very big baker of bread in the country. Volumes are down 6%, but they increased the prices 12% so that they could increase their revenue by 6% during mm. this crisis. Um, that's how immunized they are. Yeah. And, and it says to me also that they have such a strong dominant position that they're actually not worried about losing market share. The, the decline in volumes is probably largely because they said that maybe you can drop in purchasing capacity, but they think they're going to maintain the margins even when they push up prices. So they're looking after their shareholders first. Mm. 
ShopRite is the biggest supermarket you know, uh, group in the country. Um, in their latest report up to the end of June 2020, so fully within the COVID period, they increased their profits by 17.2% on their supermarket operations in South Africa. Overall, they actually increased more than that, 24%. So they managed to increase margins, increase profits, increase returns to shareholders in the middle of this crisis. You know, it's interesting listening to you go through some of those figures because the the companies that have mostly come under scrutiny for the prices of the goods that they're selling under COVID have been those that were selling that have been selling masks, sanitizers, etc. We moved from a time where those products were very overpriced to perhaps where some may argue still uh, expensive, but those prices have co- have come down quite considerably, and yet. For basic items like what you're mentioning now, bread, maize meal, um, there certainly is no outrage about the fact that these companies feel that it is okay to increase these prices despite the fact that the country is going through this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I suppose, are doing what as corporations think they should do, you know, greater value for their shareholders and their investors. And both ShopRite and Tiger Brands have seen, you know, substantial increases of returns to shareholders right through this crisis. And, um, you know, and, and we have to remember also that a lot of those shareholders, well, first, those in South Africa are, of course, elite South Africans. And many of them are outside the country. The biggest shareholder in Tiger, single shareholder in Tiger Brands is a UK-based investment company. So, so these are people making decisions far removed from the realities mm. of people in the street who have lost their jobs, who are going hungry, and so on. And, and they're, they're guaranteeing returns to shareholders. The problem is, I mean, and in a sense, we have to expect them to do that. I mean, I get angry about it. Um, but in a sense, we could argue it's the system. And this is where you have to look at the government and say, what kind of regulation... Are they, are they bringing in? How, in this situation of disaster, are these kind of prices of basic foods allowed to increase like this? You know, and I just look at it. We do a lot of work with street traders, and some of the research we've been doing has been with small black farmers and, and street traders and so on. And we see street traders, ordinary people, trying to make a living, selling the food to people in their communities at often far lower prices than the supermarkets. But they get penalized. But these are able to go out and like confiscate the goods of someone selling on the side of the road, but mm. they can't stop the Tiger Brands or the ShopRite, you know, increasing their prices in this way at multiples of the inflation rate. Uh, absolutely fascinating insights, uh, Dr. Mark Vegaroff, uh, joining us to discuss the Competition Commission's latest essential food pricing report. I'll take your calls on zero double one seven one four. Uh, 2006 and uh, you can also send your WhatsApp voice notes and messages on 0614-104-107 and of course one expects that there would be a greater social conscience or even social compact. Yes, we know that ultimately big business wants to make money but you know we were told under the pandemic that these are not ordinary times and that everybody needs to come on board and and be part of the solution. But the reality is that uh, not, not everybody is necessarily being part of the solution in the best way that they can be if consumers are still being charged uh, to, the, to, the, to the extent that they are. I want us to talk about, you know, the small scale farmers and their participation 
in South African agricultural markets and some of the trends that we are seeing there and, and why it is that small-scale farmers seem to continuously be left, of, uh, be left on the margins and on the periphery of, uh, of participating in your more large-scale markets? Um, yes, I, I can touch on that, and I hope we'll touch on a little bit the solutions that you started yes. um, sort of mentioning solutions there as well. And the report does you know, go into some of the solutions, which a lot of which are around you know, um, a decentralization and more diverse actors and more local markets. Uh, but briefly on your, the question in terms of small farmers, I mean, one study we've been doing recently looking at black farmers in the fresh produce sector, uh, especially under COVID, I mean, certainly they have been under a lot of pressure and they faced a lot of um, disruptions to inputs. They faced the problems of increased prices of inputs and then also disruptions to their markets. And I think it just, and so during this time, one of the things that's happened is that there's actually been six, you know, great successes in the agricultural sector. It's been a contributor to the little economic growth we've had. But most of that has been um, through exports and a lot of exports of wine and citrus and also big maize exports, which brings us back to this pricing issue, you know, a 98.5% increase in our maize exports last year, even as maize prices at home were increasing and people's incomes going down. So most of your small black farmers are not benefiting from those kind of export markets. Um, and you know, it's, it's, the, it's the structure of the food system that is geared to a particular scale of operation and a particular nature of operation that is very hard uh, to get into if you're a new and you're a small black farmer operating a different scale. And so the uh, market systems are geared to a particular scale. What mm-hmm. the report from the Competition Commission then suggests is that we need more localized markets, and they point to this being a trend even internationally. And certainly from our study, what we could see is that you know, black farmers who sell directly to like bucky traders and street traders could get a, were getting a better price, and they were getting paid in cash. And those same street traders and bucky traders are passing on the food and selling it on at a lower price than the supermarket, often close to 50% less or half the price of the supermarket. Mm. So that's a win-win in terms of the farmer gets more and the end uh, consumer is paying less for the same product. So I would argue that that system is one that we need to build on. We need more localized markets and mm-hmm. we have the nuclear sort of heart of them in what many small black farmers and street traders and bucket traders are already doing. And we need to value that, uh, stop criminalizing it, which is often done, yeah. um, and value it and build on that as the basis for our own particular form of sort of local market for and I suppose also appreciating the fact that you referenced Joburg um, when when you were looking at some of the prices and the Joburg uh, agriculture and food market. The reality is that a lot of the suppliers in Joburg are getting the food from the same place. And yet sometimes, you know, it's very easy to look down in the tom- on the tomatoes that, you know, somebody's selling you from the corner of the street versus what you think you're finding in, a, you know, a fruit and vegetable store. And yet uh, sometimes they're coming from the same place. Yeah, they often are. I mean, the, the, the municipal markets perform a very useful function. And, and from those prices I shared, I mean, they are not the problem in terms of these price increases. The mm. prices there are at a reasonable level. The, the, the gap is somewhere between that and the final retailer. But you will find supermarket groups buying there and uh, street traders buying there. Also, when you look at that, you realize just how important these street traders are. I mean, the, 
the, we don't have accurate figures on it, but the municipal, it's estimated that the municipal fresh produce markets sell 50 to 60% of their produce to the informal sector, which is largely street and batty traders and some spaza shops. That, that nationally, it's a 17 billion market. The turnover in those municipal markets is 17 billion rand. If 50 sure. to 60% of that is going through the informal sector, then you can do the quick calculation and say, well, that's about 8 billion rand of fresh produce through these street trades and so on. So they perform a very key function. And from our research, I mean, as I said, they, they are selling at close to half the price of the supermarkets. I gave you those average prices on the onions. And, mm, you know, like, mm. as I said, average retail price, 16.80 in the formal market. The street traders we've been price checking with, they were selling between 6 rand 50 and 7 rand for that kilo of onions. So that makes it much more accessible for the poorest. So we should value it in all sorts of ways. They create more livelihoods. They make the food more accessible. And when they buy more directly from farmers, they also give better prices. It's, so it's, yeah. I, yeah. It's, but the policymakers seem to be fixated. They're fixated on this idea. Of, they need to do an idea of what is supposed to be Western and modern or whatever, you know, of the supermarket. And, and, and so that's what we give policy support to. And meanwhile, street traders face harassment. And the COVID regulations was a classic example. At the beginning, the first lockdown, Food was, of course, seen as an essential service, so food industry was allowed to continue, but not the informal traders. They were completely stopped for some weeks. Um, to the credit of the government, they listened to the advocacy and they did amend that. But that two to three weeks that some street traders were completely stopped from trading mm-hmm. was, was so destructive to them. I mean, they, they lost their crops, they lost, they, their stocks, sorry, the produce, which obviously couldn't last. And, you know, and they're not wealthy. They don't have that backup of finance. And this is one of the things that affects them and affects the small black farmers. They don't have the financial backup that the big farmers and the big retailers have to be able to immunize themselves, as as James Hodge said, from from these kind of pressures. So they were really hit hard by that. Um, And it showed the government didn't value their contribution. Yeah. And and I wonder if this has to do with, ultimately, at the end of the day, interest, right? That sometimes, because it's difficult to be directly affected by whether... Um, Makumalo continues to sell tomatoes or not because you're not directly benefiting from that versus, um, you know, if you have shares. <laughs> I think you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was struggling to hear you a little bit, Kathy. Sorry, so, 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 I, so, so I was saying that um, sometimes I wonder if it if it also has to do with interest, how people respond yeah. to your re- your big yeah. retailers being affected yeah. versus Makumalo being unable to sell yes. at her vegetable stall because the yeah. direct interest in terms of yeah. the kind of um, profit that Makumalo make, makes doesn't really affect me. But yeah. if I Definitely. have shares and interest yeah. in some of the yeah. retailers, yeah. then of course, you know, the response is always going to be uh, disproportional. Definitely. I mean, the policymakers, and I have to say even a lot of, most of us academics and so on, of course, we kind of live in nicer neighborhoods. We tend to go to the supermarket. We have transport so we can drive there. It's easier. So we're not directly aware of and depending on that, you know, Marco Malo down the road Mm. selling and even giving the interest-free credit and things like that. Um, And at the same time, you know, we're not investing in them. There's no profit to be made for international investors in those street traders. Mm. Uh, There is profit to be made in large supermarket groups and large milling operations, etc., and in the exports. 
So, and unfortunately, our government seems to listen far more to the interests of a lot of those large investors and so on than they do to that person in the street. So I think the decision makers are detached in two ways. For, you know, this is not the food system they're interacting with daily. And also, you know, as you say, they, they don't profit. And, and also, they, maybe they don't see that as a you know, big revenue generator in taxes as well. Mm. But if we look at the profit that Marco Malo makes, that profit, it's, first of all, it's supporting her and often her family and so on. And she's spending more of that back into her local community. So that is actually more useful profit for our local communities and our local economies than profits going to you know, elite and international shareholders. That is extraction out of the system. So when you know, our money, like supermarkets in the township are selling there or even setting up these like container operations, they're extracting you know, profit out of those areas, and a right. lot high proportion even goes out of the country. Whereas yep. Marco yep. Malo is there, is spending there, um, and also knows people there, contributes in that community. Sure. Dr. Mark, we'll continue and wrap up our conversation after the 11 o'clock news, and Musa is standing by. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It's 7 after 11 o'clock. Welcome to the Talking Point, at least the third and final hour of the show. I did talk about manifesto launches. Uh, so Action SA was this morning. I'm seeing now uh, COPE also launching its manifesto, promising to improve the life of South Africans. And I'm sure there will be plenty more as we edge closer and closer to the elections. All right, so we're going to continue and wrap up our conversation uh, with Dr. Mark. And this is, uh, of course, we've been looking at the impact of COVID-19 and the uh, state of the economy on food market, on the food market and on prices. And uh, yeah, we've been touching on various issues. Uh, Dr. Mark, I, I didn't want to let you go before you touched on the solutions because that is also an important issue. Uh, it's an untenable situation, especially for the poorest in the country. How do we make things better? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we have to just recognize and the competition commission report sort of affirmed this that you know food is essential it's essential for life for our society so we can't simply leave it to the vagaries of the market especially not the international markets and so there is strong justification and need to intervene and regulate to try and ensure that you know food is accessible to people and you know, the biggest way the government does that is with its grant programs and its national school nutrition program but we also have to look at where there are these sort of excessive prices in the system and we have to look at what at what kind of food system makes food more accessible to people and also creates more livelihoods that's another key outcome of the food system so corporations that are using their position to you know, increase prices to the consumer and push pressure onto farmers and cut their costs you know through uh, labor saving and so on and not helping our wider economy mm-hmm. uh, the competition commission talks about the need for change and for developing more small-scale localized farming linked to more local markets. And I think we tend to agree with that and say that that's what we need to do. And as I mentioned from our work, we see a lot of black farmers doing that already. Uh, you know, an in-depth study we did with 40 farmers over the last month showed that about seven of those switched under the pressures of COVID to more local selling because they were getting better prices. Despite the pressures on those that informal sector, they were getting better prices in that informal sector. And as I said, that informal sector makes food more accessible in price, but also because they're close to where people are, mm. often work long hours, and in many cases, in, in residential.
residential areas gives interest-free credits. All of those things make this a good food system for for poorer people in our country. So that, I believe, is what we need to build on to have more local markets, and we must support those. And more, and we have to you know, decentralize and break down these big um, the control that many of the big corporations have. I think we also have to protect our local agricultural and food system from you know international price pressures. You know, we really shouldn't have people who can't afford food here simply because the the rand or dollar exchange rate changes, something like that. Mm. You know, and that is what is happening. I mean, there are food prices get affected by those kind of things. So you know, or, and at the moment, if farmers can you know and can sell internationally at a better price, that's what they do. But uh, but it's not even the farmers; it's more the traders and the companies in the food who, who benefit from that. So. I would say build on the local solutions that uh, local farmers have and these street traders have. Give some protection from these international markets to make sure we make food in the country and create more livelihood in the country. Dr. Vegarif, let me thank you so much for your time this morning. I've really appreciated this conversation. Development Studies Program Coordinator at the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Pretoria. Uh, Frank saying on the WhatsApp line, Hi, Kathy, did you know retailers add on the shrinkage, the waste, uh, and etc. on all fruit and veggies? So we are paying for, um, we're paying for, um, for dumping too. Um, Mr. Mohammed says again it's government fault government's fault. I'm regularly in the United Arab Emirates and for supermarkets to increase even the price of a box of matches they're put through a rigorous process by government where they have to explain um, the increase and so a lot more needing to go into uh, how prices are managed and regulated in our country. That's the perception that I'm getting from our listeners today. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we continue, we focus on alcohol fetal syndrome.